Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 502. This is the weekly podcast about slow flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free online directory to more than 850 florists, shops, and studios who design with local, seasonal, and sustainable flowers and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor for 2021, Farm Grow Flowers. Farm Grow Flowers delivers iconic burlap wrap bouquets and lush, abundant arrangements to customers across the U.S., supporting more than 20 U.S. flower farms by purchasing more than $9 million of U.S.-grown fresh and seasonal flowers and foliage annually and providing competitive salaries and benefits to 240 team members based in Watsonville, California and Miami, Florida. Discover more at farmgirlflowers.com. For each podcast episode this year, we thank three of our major sponsors as well. Thank you to the Gardener's Workshop, which offers a full curriculum of online education for flower farmers and farmer florists. Online education is more important this year than ever, and you'll want to check out the course offerings at thegardenersworkshop.com. Since the Flower Society's roots were established in 2013, there's a perennial question I've been asked over and over. How do we know if consumers care about local flowers? I strongly believe having a statistically accurate snapshot of people's attitudes is one important way the Slow Flowers movement can demonstrate and help move the needle on this subject. Yet, I'm aware of only two surveys that ever asked consumers about their attitudes toward domestic and local cut flowers. One took place in 2013, conducted by the California Grown Association, and one took place in 2019, conducted for the Washington Flowers Project in my region. Clearly, we need research metrics to measure and document how awareness and attitudes are changing around one of the most important topics of the Slow Flowers movement. At the beginning of 2021, Slow Flowers Society began to collaborate with and invested in the well-respected National Gardening Survey, which has been conducted annually since 1973. Now, for the first time, the National Gardening Survey has established benchmarks around consumer attitudes on domestic and locally grown cut flowers. The findings are so encouraging, and we now have a statistically accurate tool to track changes and shifts in future years. I'm so pleased today to welcome the two men responsible for the 2021 National Gardening Survey, Dave Wittinger, National Gardening Association Executive Director, and Paul Cohen, Research Director and a professor in the Department of Business Administration at Carleton University and Principal of Paul Cohen Associates. Dave and Paul will explain more about the National Gardening Survey, which is the comprehensive market research report that leaders in the lawn and garden industry count on each year to track consumer shifts and to help them make strategic marketing decisions. The survey provides in-depth and up-to-date market 
information on industry trends, household participation, consumer profiles, and retail sales. Nearly 2,500 U.S. households respond each year to an array of questions as part of an omnibus survey about their behavior and spending power in the lawn and garden space. Companies in the gardening industry financially support the research, and sales of this year's 361-page report provide revenue for the National Gardening Association. Check out today's show notes for episode 502 at deborahprinzing.com, where you can find and download a few of our graphics inspired by survey findings. You are welcome to use them in your own conversations with customers, in newsletter articles, blog posts, and social media. It's my goal that the Slow Flowers membership will join me and encourage discussion around consumer behavior and attitudes. So let's dive right in so you can hear the big reveal as we learn how survey respondents answered the two Slow Flowers questions. How important is it that the flowers you purchase are American grown? And how important is it that the flowers you purchase are locally grown? Welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, and I am so excited today to talk about a new project that Slow Flowers is getting involved in, and it is the uh, 2021 National Gardening Survey. And today I have two of the men behind that survey, and they're, uh, they've agreed to come on and talk about what this project is all about. So first I want to introduce Dave Wittinger, Executive Director of the National Gardening Association. Hi, Dave. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for doing this. And his cohort, Paul Cohen, Research Director at the National Gardening Association. Hi, Paul. Hi, Debbie. Thanks for uh, thanks for indulging me in a conversation about this. Um, basically, we're going to talk about new findings around consumer behavior and attitudes specifically to cut flowers, which is a brand new category of questions that Slow Flowers is sponsoring in the annual uh, National Gardening Survey. It'll be released very soon. Uh, This is a little bit of a sneak peek. And um, I wanted to just get a little context here. Um, Dave, maybe you can talk about what is the National Gardening Association, the kind of the parent umbrella organization that manages garden research. Just give us kind of a snapshot of this has been around for a long time as I you know I remember it from being in the Garden Writers Association. Yeah, yeah. I remember being kind of a young child and my parents getting the National Gardening magazine from the National Gardening Association. And uh, it's just kind of crazy that it's that's how long it's been around. Uh I mean I won't tell you exactly how long ago that was, but uh, I think you're younger like, than me. So it's your yeah. child, just a child. Yeah. Um, but yeah, NGA started um, early early 1970s, around 1971, and um, kind of began as a an, an association of community gardens. Um, so people, uh, you know, they didn't have a private place to garden, you kind of band together. And um, in the 70s, that was a really popular thing. Uh, and so that's that's kind of what got started. And at that very same time, right at the beginning, um, Bruce Butterfield uh, was doing the research uh, you know, under the NGA umbrella, and he would do an annual survey uh, through, you know, Gallup or, you know, different, you know, different organizations. And uh, then he would do all of the number crunching and uh, produce this awesome several hundred page report every year that just kind of covered the trends of what gardeners are doing. And later we started also looking at the trends of what gardeners are thinking. And uh, we asked them questions like that. And um, uh, really, really interesting. It, 
it's way more interesting than it sounds mm-hmm. uh, to, to have a research report like this and to, to read and to see those trends and look at the graphs and, you know, see that, you know, food gardening is up or, you know, uh, you know, cut flowers now uh, to see what they're doing and um, other questions like that. Anyway, um, so the NGA has that research side. And then, of course, we have the um, educational side where essentially our mission is to educate gardeners and uh, provide informational educational resources to people. And we do that primarily through uh, the ourgarden.org website. Um, so if you just go to garden.org, uh, that's us. And we have millions and millions of pages of information on that wow. website. Wow. Uh, yeah. But but home gardeners or individual gardeners, uh, non-professional gardeners can join as an, they can join as members, right? Oh yeah, totally. Um, yeah. We don't even, we don't even have a paid membership. It's just a, it's a free website, free resource. We have all kinds of, we do sell a few eBooks and things like that. Um, but uh, but for the most part, everything on the site's free. You can sign up, and it's kind of like a social media website in many ways. People can post pictures from their garden, and other people can like the the photos. And we have this little virtual currency called acorns, and people can give each other acorns, and you can earn acorns by contributing to our plant database, things like that. So it's actually a really fun website. Uh, we have how many how many people are involved as either on your you know just participants or who've signed up. Well, we have over a million signups. Oh my gosh, Dave, that's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Now that's, you know, a lot of those signups are from CompuServe.com email addresses from 1999. So, yeah. I I am off of AOL finally, but I know what you mean. (laughs) Right. Exactly. So, um, but you know, we have a, we have a weekly newsletter that goes out to our active members and, um, that number I believe is around 250,000. Wow. That's significant. Yeah. We keep it clean so that if you don't open it for six months, you automatically get removed. Mm-hmm. And so and if it bounces, you automatically get removed. So those about a quarter million is probably a pretty good number of the people who really receive our content mm-hmm. and, and engage with it in one way or another. Uh, okay. So this organization it predates you, Dave, when did you get involved and uh, take over as executive director and what, what were you doing in the gardening space before then? Yeah, well, I've been with NGA for about five years now. Um, Prior to that, I was, um, well, to go back to the beginning, really in the year 2000, I started a website called Dave's Garden, uh, which is, it had its heyday, and I think now it's kind of not really around very much anymore, but uh, there- It was, there Dave's was, Garden was the, like, the go-to site when when people started using the internet for information. I mean, you were the man. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, um, we had fun with, with Dave's Garden. It was a it was a cool website. There was a lot of interesting things that we were doing. It was early in the internet days too, and so um, you know, I'm a software developer, so I, I wrote the website and I wrote all of the the code myself, and we just you know had a really good time. And you know, I ran that site for about ten years. And uh, hmm. long story, uh, long story about where you know what happened to the website and all of that. Um, but uh, I ended up leaving, and I started up another website, basically another gardening site because I was going to continue to do that, but I wasn't controlling Dave's garden anymore. Uh, And I did that for five years and then NGA came along and uh, I joined it and it joined us. It's awesome. uh, Yeah. So we ended up merging. That's how garden.org kind of came into existence is we merged the garden.org that had been up there for several decades by this point. And we merged that with this gardening website that I had been spending five, five years developing uh, after Dave's garden. So that's how we have this new, hybrid approach to, uh, you know, to what the new garden.org is. Um, wow. So 
Which came first, being a software developer or being an avid gardener? I mean, you have a, a like double threat skill set there, sir. I remember being three years old and an acorn germinated in our backyard in Richardson, Texas. And uh, I was so excited to see the roots that I planted it and it came up and it grew leaves. And I was just astonished. I remember I was three years old. And, That's crazy. Uh, yeah. And I got into an argument with my brother and he went outside and angrily took my seedling and and tossed it over the fence. And uh, I was so disappointed. Um, but I learned that, you know, in you know, plants aren't really, they're not animals. It's okay. If you lose a plant, you just start up another one. And so, uh, yeah, definitely the gardening came first. Um, mm. my, my, my parents, my grandparents on, on both sides are avid gardeners all the way back. And um, I love nature. I love growing things. And so, uh, and I love keeping animals too. So uh, I just literally love everything that's outside. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so the software development came uh, just as a career choice for myself uh, when I was a teenager. Yeah, but at the time when you started Dave's dot Dave's Garden dot com, right? Is that the what it was called? Um, yes. The you were such an early adopter. I mean, I would say when I was working in in um, <clears throat> garden centers, independent garden centers around that time. Uh, people communicated over fax. There was no internet being used. No garden centers didn't have websites. So you were definitely a pioneer that brought along kind of this industry that was a little bit hesitant about technology. And and you were there when when consumers were looking for information on the internet too. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's why it was so successful. Was at the time it filled a really big desire in people. People wanted to go online. They wanted to interact with each other. Uh, you know, it's, it's one thing to have web pages and that was what we kind of had in the, in the late 90s was we had web pages and you could go and you could read you know, what somebody wrote about about something but to actually have an interactive website was something that was really not a thing mm. uh, in 1999 and 2000 and so um you know i i had experience with making interactive websites and software and things like that um previous to making dave's garden and so um I actually, you know, was writing things to let people like so they could they could create an account which that by itself was this really new idea to make an account on the website. Um, and then, you know, I, people wanted to maintain a list of seeds that they, that they owned that they could offer for trade. And so I made it so that you can make your own list of seeds. And then other people can say, I want that. And I want that. And I want that. And then it kind of matches people up. And so people were trading seeds and they were using my website to trade seeds. And um, we went from 200 people uh, within a couple of months, we had like 200 people. And then the next month we had like 3000 people. Um, wow. And it was just crazy how fast it grew. And people were like, this is, this is something that I can use to interact with other gardeners, which is basically was really unheard of at the time. Um, right. You really created the, the first chat room forum uh, community for uh, a, a subject matter and for, a, you know, a, a, a profile of, a, of passionate, you know, I don't know, adopters of gardening. I remember wanting information and going on Dave's Garden and typing it. And then, you know, I would get, it was sort of like participant generated content. And then people would give me their advice on a particular rose that I was having trouble finding or, you know, some kind of issue in the garden that I, I needed advice on. It was, it was, uh, you deployed all these people to help each other. Yeah, and that's what we're doing with Garden.org now. It's the same exact thing. Um, wow. We, yeah, we have a whole army of you know people. We have maybe I don't know fifty that are dedicated moderators who are you know volunteers, and they they kind of watch over the different parts of the website. Um, you know, for example, like Mike Dunton, who he's the owner of Victory um, Seed Company. 
Uh, he sells a lot of heirloom tomatoes and peppers and things. Well, so he moderates our tomatoes and peppers database. So anytime somebody wants to make a change to that database, he reviews the change and then he clicks on approve or decline. Uh, and uh, yeah, the whole site is, I mean, it, there's there's only a few of us in the association by this point. We don't have 40 employees like we used to, um, but we don't we don't need 40 employees because we we uh, we have so many volunteers that help us right, with that. Right, right, ambassadors. Yes. Wow. Well, let's bring Paul in and talk about this national survey, the National Garden Survey and um, Gardening Survey. I you mentioned Bruce Butterfield earlier, Dave. I I knew Bruce uh, when I was the president of the Garden Writers Association. Had some nice conversations with him. I I know that he passed away a couple years ago, and um, but. Uh, uh, I'm sure he is sorely missed just in the community because he was so so supportive of any questions I ever asked as a journalist. And um, now the mantle's been passed to you, Paul, but you've worked on this survey, the research for for a while as as well. Tell us a little bit about the role as research director. Uh, sure, Deborah. I, I've got a, a lot of decades of history <laughs> to reveal my age too much, but uh, I worked with Bruce Butterfield. He, he was a dear friend of mine, actually. We worked together way back in my early days in business. I worked for a company called Gardenway, which was the Troy-built rototiller company. Oh, wow. And I was, I was research director uh, for, for Troy-built, for Gardenway. And uh, Bruce kind of came on board with one of our founders of Gardenway, who is a real visionary. Dave's very familiar with him. Uh, wanted the whole country to live more self-sufficiently. His name was Lyman Wood. I don't know if you knew Lyman, but he was one of Gardenway's founders. And he pretty much started up what became the National Gardening Association. It was first called Gardens for All. Hmm. Lyman started it. And he pulled in Bruce Butterfield um, to handle the research. And this National Gardening Survey has been going on for more than 40 years now. Wow. Um, you know, just a little more history in in the Gardens for All newsletter, uh, another one of our employees, another visionary by the name of Will Rapp, oh, yeah. um, started inserting a couple flyers for selling tools in the Gardens for All newsletter. And that ended up evolving into the business that Will Rapp founded, Gardener Supply Company. So, um, you know, it's, it's been a long history. Um, it's great that uh, Bruce was able to carry on uh, the research and the tradition for so many decades. And I know he is sorely missed in the industry because Bruce was really a great guy and he was his passion, like Dave's passion for gardening was was so self-evident. And um, like I said, like you mentioned, unfortunately, Bruce mm. did pass away um, a few years ago. Um, I got a call from Jim Feinson. Uh, Jim is currently the president of Gardener Supply Company, who recently retired, by the way, and now works with us huh. and provides the commentary. We'll be providing the commentary for this year's National Gardening Survey. And uh, Jim gave me a call, gave me the bad news about Bruce. And, and after I got over the shock, he said, look, can you help us out? We, we've got this research. We want to keep it going. And I said, of course, I'll, I'll do my best to, to try and lift up the mantle. Um, uh, I can never be a, a, another Bruce Butterfield, but I've, I've done my best to try and keep the tradition going. And uh, Hooked up with Dave. And basically, in the last few years, the research part, the National Gardening Survey, which was split off from the National Gardening Association is all back in the same home now, which I think is where it belongs. Wow. So the National Gardening Survey is has become like the go-to um, document that anybody in uh, the business of 
consumer gardening needs to refer to, right? I mean, how do you describe um, the ways, and Dave, jump in here, the ways the survey is utilized and why is it so important to do it annually? Um, well, I can speak to that first. Yeah, do. You know, we like watching trends. Most of the most of our clients, the, the ones who um, who've been with us for many many years, the Scotts Mulgrew grows the big the big companies out there, uh, want to see what's going on trend wise. And the National Gardening Survey is pretty much the what did gardeners do survey. We we ask uh, a representative sample of households. Uh, a very large sample, by the way. This year we have over 2,400 respondents. So for a survey, very large size. And that's because we slice and dice the data so many different ways. And we basically ask respondents what they and their households individually or households did over the past year. So it really is a good benchmark every year to find out what's happening, where are the changes, where are the trends. And we ask a plethora of questions. It's a very, very large survey uh, across a tremendous number of product and activity areas. And, you know, we feel that it's pretty much, it's, it's just the go-to piece of research out there and has mm -hmm. been for decades in mm -hmm. terms of what gardeners did. And so it's usually... Uh released as a report uh, around the middle of April, and the national media often picks up uh, some of the sort of key insights that maybe are showing a shift or a, you know, a, a major trend, right? Absolutely. For example, I, I don't think it's any secret to know that because of the pandemic this last year, there's been a huge spike and a huge interest in gardening. And um, not to give anything away, but in Jim Feinstein's um, commentary, he came up with a very clever name for it. It's the gardening clash. Mm. Will they stay or will they go now? Mm -hmm. Oh, I love it. <laughs> one of the big questions this year is with all these new gardeners coming in, what are their attitudes? What are their plans for the future post pandemic? And that's one of the areas we, we dive into very deeply uh, in this year's report. Mm -hmm. And so when the report is um, released, uh, if people purchase like the major uh the major document and then is that correct is it, it it's a like a published report that people can purchase and it's it's pretty pricey because you there's a lot that goes into it right it's it's not like something i would buy at the magazine stand yeah i'll answer that um this is dave i am yeah. Um, yeah it's definitely it's definitely expensive it's not it's not something that's intended for you know like end user gardeners mm -hmm. um so you know, we, you know, it's, and, and like you said, I mean, it's, it's expensive to produce and we don't sell it to hundreds of, of companies either. So, uh, you know, we kind of try to price it in such a way that we, you know, pay all of our bills and maybe have a little bit left over if possible. Yeah. I uh, mean, you, you're kind of, you're kind of um, sponsored by companies that want this information and, and that helps get it produced as well. I mean, that's one side of it, but then selling the data to companies that just want to know the profile of the American gardener is really another revenue source to keep this thing going year after year. Totally. And, and we keep on improving it as well. Um, which is something that is an interesting point there. Um, that we, every year, uh, we, we add enhancements to it, uh, whether it's, you know, better, better software that results in higher quality graphs. And I mean, the, the survey this year is just, I mean, five times, better looking and, and just nicer and, and, and easier to consume than it was, you know, five years ago. Wow. So um, wow. those improvements aren't, they aren't, they aren't all free. 
Right. Um, but we're, we're, we're happy to, you know, we're happy to pay because the companies want a good product yeah. and there's, you know, there's so few of them. They really rely on this. They all reliably buy it every year. So they, they rely on us producing a good quality piece of work and they're always happy to, to mm-hmm. pay. And so that's. So it's like uh, equipment companies, hard goods, um, suppliers, and then also the, all the, all the breeders and seed and plant companies. Is that kind of a general, uh, uh, profile of who's, who's going to use this research? Paul, you want to answer that <laughs> one there? Did I put you on the spot? <laughs> I, I, I can answer it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll answer it. It's, it, it's, 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 it's not so much the smaller companies that that buy our research. It's the larger ones. So it's like you know Scott's Miracle Grow, uh, you know, Ace Hardware is a customer, I think. Um, you know, major brands. Com- yeah, major brands. Generally, these are people that um, have on their staff somebody like like Paul, who is a research director in their company, and uh, you know, people like that. You know, subscribe to our products and probably others as well. And mm-hmm. uh, it's. It's not really it's not really a mom and pop kind of thing, although, I, you know, I feel like mom and pops could benefit from it, but it's just not really priced in such a way that um, that's that's reachable to them right now. Right. But you do you, know, um, you have some kind of executive summary that you with highlights that you share with the public uh, with when you do go to the press. Right. For sure. I mean, you know, the, the big stories that we uncover, I mean, you know, whenever you maybe you run a survey, you kind of find stories. And as you kind of read through it, you're like, hmm, this is a thing that's happened. Mm. And you know, that's, that's always fun. And so we like to, we like to kind of see what are the big stories of the year. And then we put that out in a, you call it an executive summary, we, basically a, a press release. One of the new things that I'm excited about is that I approached you and I ended up talking with Paul. I think I emailed and Dave, you emailed me first and said, talk to Paul. Uh, this was right at the first of the year. And I knew about this survey and I kept thinking, how can cut flowers get in on this? How can discussion of, um, cons- you know, consumer interest in uh, flowers be um, be something that you know, we, you maybe would be interested in. And so uh, Paul and I had a really nice conversation. And he, first of all, Paul, you revealed to me that the uh, the National Gardening Survey was already asking consumers about cut flowers or flower um, attitudes and, and purchases. Can you describe what you generally had been asking um, year after year for the last, I don't know, how long, several years? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Deborah, we in the past, we have asked uh, one of the many, again, plethora of questions about product category purchasing, and, and there are literally dozens of them in the study, I think, which is why it's so popular. But we did ask one question about buying cut flowers, flower arrangements, and silk flowers. However, that question uh, in the past was only asked of those households who identified themselves as gardening or gardening participating households. And Deborah, when you and I spoke, you know, you mentioned the desire to get more of a national and everybody kind of opinion, because you certainly don't have to be a gardener to buy cut flowers. In fact, many non-gardeners do. And so what we did this year was we incorporated the new uh, series of questions and asked all respondents a national representative sample uh, regarding the cut flowers questions. So that's what's new. And then um, you uh, were so generous in letting Slow Flowers sponsor a couple specific questions that I was interested in. Um, One is about um, asking your respondents, when they do purchase cut flowers, is it important that the flowers they purchase are U.S. grown or domestic? And then even digging, drilling down a little bit more, is it important that they're local? And 
you know, I don't, I'm not a scientifically trained researcher, but I do know enough to say you have to have a benchmark so you can compare future attitudes you know, going forward. And uh, that's kind of redundant. Sorry. But I mean, I was just excited that we could grab this intel for 2021 so that maybe we come back next year and see if the attitudes have, if the needle has moved. Is that sort of an approach that um, I should be taking? Well, absolutely. Uh, most, (laughs) Most of the data in our study is benchmarked and is looked at over time. And the whole idea of trend analysis, because one famous quote Bruce Butterfield always used to say is one year does not a trend make. That was one of his famous quotes. So it's always good, even if it's not every year, but periodically to measure attitudes, measure opinions, measure purchasing activities, and see if we're, we're generally seeing an uptrend, a downtrend, or if nothing's happened. And it also oper- offers the opportunity to dig a little bit deeper in the future into the why. It's like, mm-hmm. why is this important? Or why mm-hmm. is it not important? Some of the Research uh, you shared with me, Deborah, I believe the big study done in Washington State on cut flowers got into that a little bit. So it's also nice to compare and contrast this national data against other studies that might be done on a regional basis. Mm-hmm. Well, um, can we talk a little bit about the the findings on flowers or is it embargoed until the report comes out? Fine with me. It's your, you sponsored okay. the question. Okay. All right. Well, I just wanted to, you know, go down that path. All right. So first of all, I found it was very interesting that um, you identified just based on extrapolating the number of people surveyed and the m- number of Americans that um, an estimated 104.6 million individuals spent money on cut flowers in 2020 with an average household expenditure of $62.63 per per household on cut flowers. But that blows up to being $6.55 billion spent on cut flowers in 2020. Uh, I can't even wrap my head around that. So that that's, that's a, a stat that you can't even compare to the previous year because you didn't ask all respondents prior to 2021, right? We did not. We did not ask about expenditures. and. Just as a, just as a cautionary note here, when we ask people how much how much did you spend on something over the past year, there's always going to be some variability in the data, and people trying to remember uh, what what happened uh, versus the actual activity of doing something. We're usually very accurate on that, so it would be interesting to see how that number plays out over time. It's possible some people who said they bought cut flowers were talking about a flower arrangement versus just loose cut flowers. So that would probably include flower arrangements in there. And it'd be interesting to also look at some other national or even worldwide data for comparisons. I I took a quick look a few weeks ago, I remember, and I saw some figure thrown out there for $50 billion worldwide market for Mm -hmm. cut flowers. Mm -hmm. And if you want, I can, I could send you that citation. Uh, That I think was a projection over the next few years. And I also saw a number about a $400 million wholesale U S market. So it's always good to try and triangulate data that we get to see how it matches up against other right. research. Right. That's interesting. Well, yeah, because obviously the figure that, that I just cited is probably a retail purchase versus the wholesale expenditures or transactions. Yeah. Um, when it came to asking the question about attitudes, I was 
I was really happy to see that 57% of respondents say that it is very or somewhat important when they purchase cut flowers that they know that those flowers are U.S. grown. And then that was 57%. When you asked about local, it went up to 58% of people who said it's very or somewhat important to them. So, you know, I feel like that's a good, a good foundation that we can build on going forward and um, asking, as you said, maybe more about do they know where to find those flowers if that's their attitude. Uh, I don't know. Uh, were you surprised? I'm Dave, I'm, I'm curious. If you knew about this. Did you have any kind of uh, attitude like, oh, yeah, I, I can see where this is going? Or what did it did it hit you as maybe one of those? This is a thing. Uh, sensations you referred to sometimes experiencing. Well, I I wasn't surprised to see high a high level of interest. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, flowers. You know, we we've known that that's a popular thing. Um, people people grow flowers specifically. I mean, in our database, we have a flag for you know this flower is good for yeah for cut flowers, mm -hmm. and you know people search for that. They they're looking for that. They're looking to grow them. Uh, of course, they're buying them as well. Um, I've known anecdotally many people who, yeah. you know, buy and sell cut flowers. So yes, uh, yeah, that's actually another good question. Did you buy as a gift or for yourself or your household? We'll have to put that into the mix um, in the future. Uh, I was pleasantly uh, encouraged, uh, Paul. I don't know if you had any kind of uh, suspicion that it was going to, you know, be well over, you know, well over half. I'm not quite two thirds, but. Uh, of people just considering the origin of the flowers they're purchasing. I, I actually was surprised uh, I, that it was that high. Um, I, again, I'd looked at that study that was done in Washington state. And one of the strange things I saw there was there was a conclusion that um, it was not four out of five do not consider locally grown important. And I said, wait a second, how does that match up? Four or five don't consider locally grown important. When I looked at the data more closely and the question that was asked, it was a rank order question. Mm. Okay, so they basically threw out things like cost and convenience and other things. And yeah, convenience and cost came up as number one and two. Um, but it also showed that a lot of people didn't even know where their flower was grown. I thought that was very interesting and the suggestion for some kind of longevity tag and the correlation between being grown locally or in the United States will correlate with how long the flower is going to last, which was a very important attribute. So, so yes, I was pleasantly surprised to see that, that when asked specifically about this topic, is it important or not versus rank order, what's most important when you're buying cut flowers, that the importance of being grown locally and in the United States uh, did show uh, to be uh, that that mm. much of an important uh, attribute. Yeah, I feel validated. Like, okay, I've known this, back to Dave's comment about anecdotally, right? We know that this is, um, you know, a facet of the gardening uh, consumer and obviously consumers who don't garden, but who are flower lovers. And so it's just nice to have a little validation from a, such a well-regarded uh, survey and um, know that the research was done scientifically and like, uh, like top-notch research, because now we can point to this and say, here's one insight. Um, and, you know, I get a lot of that question, uh, the questions from people like, well, we don't eat flowers, so why do we care how, the, you know, what methods were used to grow them? Like, that's another kind of 
misconception that somehow uh, organic is only important on the food side of things. And so I, I'm curious maybe in the future about asking that. Um, I just think, you know, local uh, local alludes to so many important benefits for any community. It's not just supporting local farmers, but it's keeping money in the in the community, helping the economic, of, you know, vitality of of rural and urban places where flowers are grown. So, you know, I'm, I feel like this is just so validating to me to see this, this information. And I'm so grateful that you were caregivers uh, and caretakers of this, these questions um, that took so much time and energy to, to produce over the last several months. Um, so I can't wait to see what we do next. When do you, when do we have to start thinking about the 2022 survey? <laughs> Probably good to wait at least a week or two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'd like to. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting when you when you do a report like this. You by the time it gets published, Dave, you've seen all the questions and all the answers, and you have you have a sense of you know what are going to be the hot topics. But um, uh, just in general, can you touch on some of the kind of the major shifts that you're seeing? You alluded to the COVID spike in gardening. So do you think that will continue for all of 2022 just because many of us are just coming out of our own self-quarantine and we've been gardening for so long now? Uh, I'm just curious what you're seeing. Yeah, this has been the big question that everybody's been asking. I mean, all last year they were asking this and all of this year they've been asking it is, is you know, first of all, how big was the impact? I mean, we know the impact was gigantic. Uh, traffic to garden.org doubled last year from 20, from 2019. So, I mean, a tremendous number of new gardeners were coming to the website. So, I mean, we knew, and every garden center that I talked to, every e-commerce seller, they all, they would all tell me they, they, they've sold everything. All they sold to the floor, they say. Mm. Uh, and, you know, uh, plants, they would get a truck in and it's all sold before the truck even unloads. Um, and so, so we knew that we, we knew that it was going to be a huge year in 2020. Uh, the big question is how huge and is it going to be sustained in 2021 and beyond? And that's that's a big question that we asked. And um, so we, we know now that um, about 18.3 million Americans gardened for the first time last year. Wow. 18 million, 18 million new gardeners joined the ranks, uh, wow. which is a it's a mind-boggling number. It's, 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 a, it's a huge seven percent of Americans, I think. That's great. And um, this is this is like a whole country joining the, you know, joining the club, you know, it's just right. the, the activities of uh, what drove people obviously where they were, you know, they were stuck at home, but they didn't, they could have been watching Netflix the whole time. And instead they started well, looking at their garden. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, they were, they were baking sourdough bread and brewing beer and watching Netflix and, and gardening. That was one of the big themes last year was gardening. And um, the big question is, you know, are they going to continue in 2021? Um, and so, you know, we we asked about that, and it turns out that the majority intend to um, at least garden as much as last year, or increase their garden, uh, their gardening amounts. I don't know the exact numbers in front of me here, but um, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, so you know, if that holds, and, and you know, these are people that we we asked, you know, to to guesstimate what they're going to do this year, and that's that's what they said, and yeah, if that holds, and if they do what they said they're going to do, then um, 2021 could end up being another gigantic year for gardening. And uh, it's it's really the task of the industry. We talk about this in our, our commentaries on the in the surveys this year is 
you know, it's, the task is to try to capture these people and, and get them get them in gardening and get them to stay in gardening. And there's a lot of things that that gardeners need in order to succeed. And, you know, the industry does need to rise to that challenge and, you know, continue to expand what it does, especially in informational products and things that educate people and help them be right. successful. Right, right. And I just, as a subset of that, in flowers, I see, and I guess a lot of people in the cut flower industry, our members of Slow Flowers, have integrated um live plants into their mix, house plants or terrariums or, you know, dish gardens, things that, that are still used for decor, but, you know, are um, not perishable as much as cut flowers. But this whole interactivity thing you alluded to, Dave, like when people can touch and engage and do a project, you do create kind of a habitual user. You're not just a consumer of a flower or plant. You're actually engaged and 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 it's a lifestyle change and that's what i'm hoping uh your you know your comment about 2021 is going to move us through is witnessing not just dabblers but habitual practitioners of of gardening and other related activities so i'm optimistic for sure yeah well well, I'm sure you've got some things to add to this. Yeah, I'd love to hear Paul's little crystal ball, and then uh, we'll we'll tell people how we can get, they can get more information about this. It's it's an open book. Uh, it's the the signs are all encouraging. The survey results are encouraging. But going back to Jim's commentary, will they stay or will they go now? I think that's the key question. Everybody think I has the great intention of continuing gardening and increasing the gardening, but once everybody's vaccinated and once everybody's out doing things again. Um, it's, that's, that's the question that remains to be seen. Jim makes some very good, uh, suggestions, uh, for, for companies in the industry, how to keep people in and what's important to keep people in the business. Um, but, uh, right now the signs certainly are encouraging. Well, that's great. Well, I'm excited, uh, to be part of this. I think, you know, it was a really, um, uh, fortuitous timing that I reached out to you right when it was like the 11th hour and we could slide some slow flowers questions into the survey. And, um, well, we'll do, I'll do a little more intentional planning for, uh, 2022, but, uh, I just am grateful that you included us. I'm grateful for the, the overall findings about gardening, because I do think that that is going to influence the floral space and the floral marketplace as well. Um, you know, I feel like one of my partners says, you know, tomatoes are the, you know, the starter drug for growing cut flowers. Like if, if you start growing edibles, then all of a sudden you realize you can do the same thing with something ornamental. So, um, hopefully that's true. And, um, you know, we'll, let's just keep talking about this. It's really exciting to, uh, to celebrate the almost publication of the 2021 National Gardening Survey. And as soon as I get the press release from you, I will I will add it to the show notes and share it widely with, with the Slow Flowers community. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you okay, my question for you is both. Mother's Day is coming up. So if you need help finding local flowers, please call me. I'll hook you up with a Slow Flowers member in, in your zip code zone and uh, you can really support a local farmer. I'm going to put you on the spot now. <laughs> Sounds great. Okay. Anything else you want to add before we wrap up? I, I think we're good. As, okay. as, like I said, it's it's the, the results were very, very encouraging in terms of the, the locally grown and looking at the other research. 
you know, how long flowers last, you know, is right up there behind color type and cost in terms of what people seem to want. So it seems like there's some real good opportunities to leverage this information uh, uh, within your industry. Mm, great. Thank you so much. And uh, best wishes to you both as you uh, get ready to release this information. So uh, again, thanks for making the time to talk with us today. Thank you. Thanks, Deborah. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, you too. See you later, Dave. <laughs> so much for joining me today as we geeked out on the research and contemplated what consumers think about your cut flowers. I'm eager to hear what you think. Do the rankings of 57% preference for domestic flowers and 58% preference for locally grown flowers resonate with you, resonate with your experience as a flower farmer or a floral designer? Please let me know your thoughts. We are already beginning to plan for additional questions to pose in the 2022 National Gardening Survey. So you're invited to reach out if you have suggestions and if you're interested in sponsoring this endeavor as a Slow Flowers partner. Let's leverage the power of research and use this well-regarded study to validate our values and beliefs around the importance of local and domestic cut flowers. Our next sponsor thank you goes to Red Twig Farms, based in Johnstown, Ohio. Red Twig Farms is a family-owned farm specializing in peonies, daffodils, tulips, and branches, a popular peony bouquet by mail program, and their Spread the Hope campaign where customers purchase 10 tulip stems for essential workers and others in their community. Learn more at redtwigfarms.com. Thanks to Ellen Frost of Local Color Flowers and Lisa Ziegler of The Gardener's Workshop for helping me present a bonus Zillflowers meetup last week. Ellen shared her timely preview of her upcoming online course, Growing Your Business with Local Flower Sourcing. And if you missed it, I'll share the replay video in today's show notes for episode 502. Registration for Ellen's course continues through this Friday, April 22nd. So check out the link I've shared and join me in congratulating flower designer Teresa Rao of Bell Patal for winning our giveaway of one complimentary registration to Ellen's course. Please join me tomorrow, April 22nd on Earth Day for an interactive Instagram Live Q&A on sustainable floral design with Toby Nelson and Becky Feesby. The event takes place at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, and you're invited to join us on Instagram at Slow Flower Society, and I hope to see you there. Bring your questions. I have one more fun date to save for your calendar. You're invited to join the virtual book launch party and happy hour on Tuesday, April 27th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern to celebrate the publication of Bloom Imprint's first title, Where We Bloom. The Zoom party will include a Q&A conversation with my partner, Robin Ovney, and me as we discuss how this beautiful and inspirational book came to be. We will also have guest appearances from three of the creatives whose spaces are included in the pages of Where We Bloom. Maura Feeney of Camellia Fair, Asha Lurie of Patagonia Flower Farm, and Susan Chambers of Bloomin' Couture. 
We'll have fun giveaways, including signed copies of our new book and sets of our Bloom note cards, along with a few surprises from our resource section sponsors, and a toast from Emily Thompson of Emily Thompson Flowers, who wrote the sweet and personal foreword to Where We Bloom. You can find the details in today's show notes, and we'll also share them in the profile link for Slow Flower Society on Instagram. Our final sponsor, Thanks, goes to the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers. Formed in 1988, ASCFG was created to educate, unite, and support commercial cut flower growers. Its mission is to help growers produce high-quality floral material and to foster and promote the local availability of that product. Learn more at ASCFG.org. Thanks so much for joining us today. The Slow Flowers podcast has been downloaded more than 716,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of our domestic cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too, and I value your support and invite you to show your thanks to support Slow Flower's ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button in the column to the right at deborahprinzing.com. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more Slow Flowers on the table, one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging onto iTunes and posting a listener review. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers Podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. Learn more about his work at soundbodymovement.com. Mm-hmm.